Hey ladies, how you doing out there, you gangsters and you senior citizens of the world? I just want to let you know that I'm here. I'm starting my new podcast with Anchor. It's free, so I thought, why not give it a try? There's creation tools there that allow you to edit your own podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute my podcast, so it will be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, at home. During the coronavirus epidemic, this is where we're going to be. So, it's a mandatory call to action that we... Take anchor. I just thought, you know how you, the title of this so book we're gonna is talk to Surrender White People. Hughley. Our unconditional terms for Surrender peace. White People. D.L. Hughley. Hey, hey D.L. <laughs> we were talking about you a couple weeks ago. Uh, first of all, how are you feeling? I'm wonderful. You know, I was I was actually more concerned about uh, my son who contracted it, some of the people that I work with who contracted it. But I, I, I really, uh, you know, one of the things um, was that I, I was asymptomatic, but, you know, I, I was dehydrated. And I have a condition where, you know, a thickening of the heart at the bottom. So if I ever am dehydrated, I actually, you know, knew that I was going to pass out. I just thought, you know how you get on stage, right. you, I, I feel like that's kind of my... I can get through it. Yeah, but I, I I couldn't, and then I thought, well, if I gotta go, I might as well be doing something I love. So uh, it was a uh, it was a very but but I tell you what, I learned a lot about uh, myself. I learned a lot about uh, the coronavirus, and I learned a lot about um, I, those disparities that they talk about, where some people are disproportionately dying. I can act, I actually got a chance. I mean, nothing is more sobering than actually being in a COVID unit. Uh, Mr. Hughley, so Black Lives Matter and the names of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Elijah McClain, and so many others have been at the forefront of our recent conversations about inequality in the country. This week we've been talking about anti-Semitism as well that was sparked by the Viacom CBS firing of Nick Cannon for his anti-Semitic comments he made. He has since issued an apology. We just wanted to know your take on what happened. I think that we learned a lot in that instance, too. I think that we learned... If uh, uh, it depends on what our goals are, our goals to make ourselves a more better society, one that can have open dialogue, or is it one to be punitive? I think that what Nick said was problematic, but I think one of the ways you you, you deal with somebody who says problematic things is to make them have to explain what they meant, and sometimes holding things up to the light of day, they cut crumble on the truth. But I think when I was a kid, they would men men somebody would have a fight, and the teacher would make us apologize, but the reasons we fought were still the same, and I think. Uh, one of the things that's happened, uh, if you have a bunch of Karens who lose their job, eventually you're going to have a Nick who loses their job. And I think that doesn't make us a better society and it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't take away what they feel, it takes away what they say. So I think we've learned a lot about uh, what not to say, but what not to feel and, and not to have dialogue that makes us better and, and understand each other a little more. 
Now, um, DL, your new book is fantastic. It's called Surrender White People, Our Unconditional Terms for Peace. And in it, you talk about reparations, which is something you know I talk about all the time on this show and outside of the show. And you offer a lot of options as to what can be done. Now, in your view, if we could implement one of those options tomorrow, where would you start? I think all the descendants of slaves should be able to send their children to higher education because I think the education gap, you know, obviously we've kind of, we're in the second half of the game. Are the people who can best benefit and, and, and deserve the chance. And I think that if we provided them quality education, upgraded their schools and sent them uh, to, to, to places of higher education, be it trade or be it uh, vocation or be it any other kind of school, I think giving our children access to higher education, which is definitely what they need, I, I think would change, uh, would change things immensely immediately. Now, also, um, I'm sure you know this, that leaders in Asheville, North Carolina, announced uh, this week on Wednesday that they had voted unanimously to provide reparations and an apology for its role in slavery. What do you think of their plan? Because their plan, in my understanding, is not necessarily cash reparations, which is what people always think about, but they, they have a, a different type of plan. Well, here's, here's the thing. We talked about this in the book. I, I, I think that anybody who opens these conversations, uh, you know, and obviously they're not gonna, nobody's gonna get them done right away into everybody's satisfaction. But reparations have been given. Uh, historically, we gave reparations to people who lost chattel. Slave owners got reparations. Italians got reparations during the during the administration. Italians were given reparations a hundred years later, earlier, and um, the Japanese have got reparations. So this idea that we've never paid reparations it is a misnomer. But anybody who has a conversation about making something right uh, after all these years, we, we, we will keep the mementos of what we did wrong, but not the rectification. Like, we, we build statues to men whose only predicate for getting a statue was being in horribly violent to black people. Like, the last time we made a statue, erected a statue to somebody who didn't uh, brutalize black people was Rocky, and he beat the hell out of Apollo Creed, so... <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you, you know, you talk about Kanye in the book, and yes. uh, due to his actions, you say uh, he's, a, he's an honorary white guy now. Okay, that's a strong statement. You couldn't have known that, uh, you couldn't have known that close to press time he would announce his run for president, which we're not sure if he's in or out at this point. Uh, what do you say about that? Could you envision a Kanye presidency? Oh, my God. I, I don't think it's discernibly different than the yeah, right now. Literally, I think that when you're, when you're motivated, you grew up in Chicago and you're more motivated by Donald Trump than the example of, of, of Barack Obama. Whether you agree with him ideologically or not, there are two d distinctly men. One is aspirational, one is just an ass, but I'll say this, um, that they're discernibly, they're, they're, they're the same type of men. Uh, they both are amoral, they both are narcissistic, neither reads, and I've seen both their wives naked. So I think they're exactly the same type. <laughs> is a huge issue in this country. Uh, but you pinpoint what you say the, uh, is the real heart of the problem. What is that? Tell us. I think that the, the, the denial of it, like, uh, it's interesting. We, we saw this play out this week. Uh, 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 Tucker Carlson said that white supremacy wasn't a problem. He, 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 he connoted that he'd never even met a white supremacist. And then he fired his head writer for being a white supremacist. So the, the, this, this notion... <laughs> Taking place, taking part 
this grandest family of America is the first thing, one of the greatest things that they say the greatest thing the devil did was convincing people he didn't exist and it's also convincing people that white supremacy doesn't exist because everybody knows it does and we see it play out all the time. You know what, Dio? It's always a pleasure to have you here. The book, the, your books are spectacular, and this last book, "Surrender White People: Our Unconditional <laughs> Terms for Peace," is fantastic. And everyone, everyone who will read it will benefit. Thanks for coming to see us, Dio. $49 can get you to breathtaking views and moments you'll never forget because Southwest has fares one way as low as $49 and you'll experience our enhanced cleaning procedures big heart and low fares book now at southwest.com Thank you.
Nigga didn't yeah, know though,
I'm sorry. I gotta hear this shit again. Hey, baby, come on, let's dance. See you later. <laughs> to the moonwalk, some stupid shit. 
Michael can do that shit though. Michael's so famous. Michael went on television and everything he says, the public believes. Went on television and said, I don't have sex because of my religious beliefs, and the public believed it. Now I know brothers like the fuck out of here. And white people going, that Michael's a special kind of guy. He's special. I mean, it's good and clean and wholesome. Y'all believe it? You know how I knew y'all believed it? Y'all ain't get mad when you took Brooke Shields to Grammys. Nobody white said shit. And Brooke Shields is the whitest woman in America. That's Miss America every year. Brooke, fuck who you see with the crap. Brooke, you look at white woman in dictionary, be a picture of Brooke like this. She's white. And this nigga took her to Grammys, nobody said shit. If I took Brooke Shields to Grammys, y'all lose your mind. Cause y'all know Brooke would get fucked that night. Story by Iceberg Slim. Get his money. 
I am sick of it all. I don't dig stables and never will. I know I'm the new bitch who has to prove herself. Well, goddammit, I am sick of this shit. I'm cutting out. She stopped for air and lit a cigarette. I was going to blast her ass off when she finished. So I just sat there staring at her. Then she went on. I have turned more tricks in the three months I have been with you than in the whole two years with Paul. My pussy stays sore and swollen. Do I get my ass kicked before I split? If so, kick it now because I'm going back to Providence on the next thing smoking. She was young, fast, with trick appeal galore. She was a pimp's dream and she knew it. She had tested me with her beef. And now she was lying back for a sucker response. I disappointed her with my cold overlay. I could see her wilt as I said in an icy voice. Listen, square-ass bitch. I have never had a whore I couldn't do without. I celebrate bitch when a whore leaves me. It gives some worthy bitch a chance to take her place and be a star. You scurvy bitch. If I shit in your face, you gotta love it and open your mouth wide. The rollers cruised by in a squad car, so I flashed a sucker smile on my face and cooled it until they passed. Kim was rooted there, wincing under the blizzard. I went on ruthlessly. Bitch, you are nothing but a funky zero. Before me, you had one chilly chump with no rep. Nobody except his mother ever heard of the bastard. Yes, bitch. I'll be back this morning to put your phony ass on the train. I rocketed away from the curb. In the rearview mirror, I saw Kim walking slowly into the hotel. Her shoulders slumped. In the hog, until I dropped the last whore off, you could have heard a mosquito crapping on the moon. I had tested out for them. Solid ice. I went back for Kim. She was packed and silent. On the way to the station... I rifled the pages in that pimp's book in my head for an angle to hold her without kissing her ass. I couldn't find a line in it for an out like that. As it turned out, the bitch was testing and bluffing right down the line. We had pulled into the station parking lot when the bitch fell to pieces. Her eyes were misty when she yelped, Daddy, are you really going to let me split? Daddy, I love you. I started the Pratt action to cinch her when I said, Bitch, I don't want a whore with rabbit in her. I want a bitch who wants me for life. You have got to go after that bullshit earlier this morning. You are not that bitch. That Pratt butchered her, and she collapsed into my lap crying and begging to stay. I had a theory about splitting whores. I think they seldom split without a bankroll. So I cracked on her. Give me that scratch you held out, and maybe I'll give you another chance. Sure enough, she reached into her bosom and drew out close to five bills and handed it to me. No pimp with a brain in his head cuts loose a young, beautiful whore with lots of mileage left in her. I let her come back. When at long last I was driving toward my hotel, I remember what Baby Jones, the master pimp who turned me out, had said about whores like Kim. Slim? Yes, eh? A pretty nigga bitch and a white whore just alike. They both will get in a stable to wreck it 
and leave the pimp on his ass with no whore. You gotta make him hump hard and fast to stick him for the long scratch quick. Slim, pimpin' ain't no game of love, so pride him and keep your swipe out of him. Any sucker who believe a whore loves him shouldn't have fell out of his mammy's ass. My mind went back to Pepper, then back even further, and I remember what he had said about the Georgia. Slim, a pimp is really a whore who has reversed the game on whores. So Slim, be as sweet as the scratch, no sweeter, and always stick a whore for a bundle before you sex her. A whore ain't nothing but a trick to a pimp. Don't let him Georgia you. Always get your money in front, just like a whore. With that being said, I will go ahead and interject my feelings on the subject. I was going to hold back and try to gather my thoughts. But my thoughts are, young pimping. If you can do it, do your thing. But a pimp is a coward. A pimp is lazy. A pimp is a user, a manipulator, a liar, and an illusion. If a woman decides to give a man her money, that's her choice. If more than woman, one woman decides to give a man her money, that's their choice. If they decide to give the same man their money, good for him. Young pimpin', do your thing. But if you can't get out there and make your own money, get your own hustle, buy your own Cadillac, your own diamonds, furs, properties, businesses, on your own accord, and that does not mean pimping is your own accord. Pimping is not your accord. You're using a other, another human being to gain money and wealth. I wish to become a decent example for my children. You want to be a decent example for your children? Good for you. When you slap that woman, you slap your mother. When you take money out of her pocket, you take money from your mother. When you take her dignity, you take dignity from your mother. So... With that being said, (sighs) I would like to send a message to the young hoes. Get your money. Don't have sex for free. Because men are not thinking what you're thinking when you're doing that. They're thinking some totally other thing. It's embedded into a man's DNA. He's going to fuck another woman, married or not. In love or not, single, in a relationship, it doesn't matter. He's going to fuck another woman. So just prepare yourself and know that he's not going to go out there and sell his dick and give you $20 or 2000 or whatever he can sell his dick for. Know and believe no man walking this earth is going to sell his body and give his money to a bitch because he love her. Now, if you just enjoy being in that environment, that R. Kelly type shit,
then do your thing. Do your thug thizzle. But if you're going to go out there and hoe and sell your body and risk your life, keep that money in your pocket if you ask me. If you ask me, there's nothing worse than a dumb hoe. You have succeeded in bringing down the level of integrity of a woman and her worth. And you have made it less than what it is because you are now selling your worth and giving it away. As if you are not worth anything. Your worth is now zero. His worth is five, six, seven hundred dollars, whatever you brought in for the night. You know, we can play whole games and say you're gonna make a hundred thousand, and you might, and it's very possible. Um, it's also possible that you didn't just suck a dick to get it, but whatever it is, once you give the money to a man or to someone else. Your worth is depleted all the way down to zero. And as a woman, I don't want to see that shit. I don't want to see these sluts out here fucking for free either. I'd rather you call me a hoe than call me a slut, by the way. You see, a hoe gets her money. A slut just gives the pussy away for free. Now, I don't know what world you want to live in, but if you're living in the world of the streets and the game, ain't nothing free. Nothing is free. So why you want to give your money to a motherfucker call himself a pimp? He ain't did shit but sit back and snort cocaine and drink and smoke weed and chill and relax while you out in the streets walking and sucking dicks and jumping in and out of cars and motel rooms with strangers that might kill you on a whim at any moment your life could be taken for a few dollars that you want to give to somebody else I mean that shit is stupid I can't even elaborate anymore on the subject it's just stupid pimps I mean I can't, I can't, I, I have no more words that can describe the uselessness of a pimp in a hoe's life. Now, you can be a pimp and then take that money and take care of your family and take care of your business, you know what I'm saying? And on that hand, on that level, I, I'll give you some credit. That you went out there and if it took you to sell 20 bitches bodies to get your kids in college, then that's what you did. Okay, got you. But if you just sitting there getting high and fucking off the money that these females, these hoes are going out here getting for you in this dangerous way. Just so you can still have nothing but a Cadillac and some jewelry. Yes, that's a problem. Alright, if you have any opinions, leave your comment. I'm done. I mean, if you want to hear some more from Iceberg Slim, you're welcome to hear it. Now it sounds like he's crying and looking for attention and sympathy. And always.
and she had surprised her panting and moaning at the point of orgasm with my tiny head wedged between her ebony thighs. Her massive hands vice-like around my head. Mama worked long hours in a hand laundry and Maud had been hired as a babysitter at 50 cents a day. Maud was a young widow. Strangely, she had a reputation in Indianapolis, Indiana, as a devout holy roller. I have tried through the years to remember her face, but all I can remember is the funky ritual. I vaguely remember not her words, but her excitement when we were alone. I remember more vividly the moist, odorous darkness and the bristle-like hairs tickling my face, and most vividly, I can remember my panic. When in the wild moment of her climax, she would savagely jerk my head even tighter into the hairy maw. I couldn't get a breath of air until, like a huge black balloon, she would exhale with a whistling whoosh and relax limply freeing my head. I remember the ache of the strain on my fragile neck muscles, and especially at the root of my tongue. Mama and I had come to Indianapolis from Chicago where since the time when she was six months pregnant, my father had begun to show his true colors as an irresponsible white spats-wearing bum. Back in that small town in Tennessee, their hometown, he had stalked the beautiful virgin and conned her into marriage. Her parents, with vast relief, gave their blessing and wished them Well, if you want to hear more, look it up on YouTube. Pimp. The story of my life by Iceberg Slim. So we're going to talk to Hughley. Our unconditional terms for Surrender peace. white people. D.L. Hughley. Hey, hey D.L. <laughs> we were talking about you a couple weeks ago. Uh, first of all, how are you feeling? I'm wonderful. You know, I was I was actually more concerned about uh, my son who contracted it, some of the people that I work with who contracted it. But I, I, I really, uh, you know, one of the things um, was that I, I was asymptomatic, but, you know, I, I was dehydrated. And I have a condition where, you know, a thickening of the heart at the bottom. So if I ever am dehydrated, I actually, you know, knew that I was going to pass out. I just thought, you know how you get on stage, right. you, I, I feel like that's kind of my... I can get through it. Yeah, but I, I, I couldn't. And then I thought, well, if I got to go, I might as well be doing something I love. So uh, it was uh, it was a very interesting... But, but I tell you what, I learned a lot about uh, myself. I learned a lot about uh, the coronavirus. And I learned a lot about um, I, those disparities that they talk about where people, some people are disproportionately dying. I, can, I, I actually got a chance. I mean, nothing is more sobering than actually being in a COVID unit. Uh, Mr. Hughley, so Black Lives Matter and the names of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Elijah McClain, and so many others have been at the forefront of our recent conversations about inequality in the country. This week we've been talking about anti-Semitism as well that was sparked by the Viacom CBS firing of Nick Cannon for his anti-Semitic comments he made. He has since issued an apology. We just wanted to know your take on what happened. I think that we learned a lot in that instance, too. I think that we learned... If uh, uh, it depends on what our goals are, our goals to make ourselves a more better society, one that can have open dialogue, or is it one to be punitive? I think that what Nick said was problematic, but I think one of the ways you you, you deal with somebody who says problematic things 
to make them have to explain what they meant. And sometimes holding things up to the light of day, they cut crumble on the truth. But I think when I was a kid, they would me and, me and somebody would have a fight and the teacher would make us apologize. But the reasons we fought were still the same. And I think uh, one of the things that's happened, uh, if you have a bunch of Karens who lose their job, eventually you're going to have a Nick who loses their job. And I think that doesn't make us a better society and it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't take away what they feel. It takes away what they say. So I think we've learned a lot about uh, what not to say, but what not to feel and, and not to have dialogue that makes us better and, and understand each other a little more. Now, um, DL, your new book is fantastic. It's called Surrender White People, Our Unconditional Terms for Peace. And in it, you talk about reparations, which is something you know I talk about all the time on this show and outside of the show. And you offer a lot of options as to what can be done. Now, in your view, if we could implement one of those options tomorrow, where would you start? I think all the descendants of slaves should be able to send their children to higher education because I think the education gap, you know, obviously we've kind of, we're in the second half of the game. Are the people who can best benefit and, and, and deserve the chance. And I think that if we provided them quality education, upgraded their schools and sent them uh, to, to, to places of higher education, be it trade or be it uh, vocation or be it any other kind of school, I think giving our children access to higher education, which is definitely what they need, I, I think would change, uh, would change things immensely, immediately. Now, also, um, I'm sure you know this, that leaders in Asheville, North Carolina, announced right. uh, this week on Wednesday that they had voted unanimously to provide reparations right. in an apology for its role in slavery. What do you think of their plan? Because their plan, in my understanding, is not necessarily cash reparations, which is what people always think about, but they, they have a, a different type of plan. Well, here's, here's the thing. We talked about this in the book. I, I, I think that anybody who opens these conversations, uh, you know, and obviously they're not gonna. Nobody's gonna get them done right away into everybody's satisfaction. But reparations have been given uh, historically. We gave reparations to people who lost chattel. Slave owners got reparations. Italians got reparations during the during the administration. Italians were given reparations a hundred years later, earlier, and the Japanese have got reparations. So this idea that we've never paid reparations. It is a misnomer, but anybody who has a conversation about making something right uh, after all these years, we, we, we will keep the mementos of what we did wrong, but not the rectification. Like, we, we build statues to men whose only predicate for getting a statue was being horribly violent to black people. Like, the last time we made a statue, erected a statue to somebody who didn't uh, brutalize black people was Rocky, and he beat the hell out of Apollo Creed, so... <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you, you know, you talk about Kanye in the book, and yes. uh, due to his actions, you say uh, he's, a, he's an honorary white guy now. Okay, that's a strong statement. You couldn't have known that, uh, you couldn't have known that close to press time he would announce his run for president, which we're not sure if he's in or out at this point. Um, what do you say about that? Could you envision a Kanye presidency? Oh, my God. I, I don't think it's discernibly different than the yeah, right now. Literally, I think that when you're, when you're motivated, you grew up in Chicago and you're more motivated by Donald Trump than the example of, of, of Barack Obama. Whether you agree with him ideologically or not, there are two d distinctly men. One is aspirational, one is just an ass, but I'll say this. Um, that they're discernibly, they're, they're, they're the same type of men. Uh, they both are amoral, they both are narcissistic, neither reads, and I've seen both their wives naked. So I think they're exactly the same type. <laughs> 
know that white supremacy is a huge issue in this country, but you pinpoint what you said is the real heart of the problem. What is that? Tell us. I think the, 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 the denial of it, like, uh, it's interesting. We, we saw this play out this week. Uh, 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 Tucker Carlson said that white supremacy wasn't a problem. He, 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 he connoted that he never even met a white supremacist. And then he fired his head writer for being a white supremacist. So the, the, this, this notion that <laughs> there, there are no impediments and that we should all be equal and that these things have never been an impediment to, uh, to us, uh, uh, you know, taking play, taking part in this grand experiment of America is the first thing. One of the greatest things that they say the greatest thing the devil did was convincing people he didn't exist. And it's also convincing people that white supremacy doesn't exist because everybody knows it does and we see it play out all the time. You know what, Dion? It's always a pleasure to have you here. The book, the, your books are spectacular, and this last book, "Surrender White People: Our Unconditional <laughs> Terms for Peace," is fantastic. And everyone, everyone who will read it will benefit. Thanks for coming to CSDL. $49 can get you to breathtaking views and moments you'll never forget because Southwest has fares one way as low as $49 and you'll experience our enhanced cleaning procedures, big heart, and low fares. Book now at southwest.com. Thank you. 
Now, go. Talking about
I'm sorry. I gotta hear this shit again. Shit. 
Michael can do that shit, though. Michael's so famous. Michael went on television, and everything he says, the public believes. Went on television and said, I don't have sex because of my religious beliefs, and the public believed it. Y'all know brothers like get the fuck out of here. Yeah, white people know that. Michael's a special kind of guy. He's special. I mean, it's good and clean and wholesome. Y'all believe it? You know how I knew y'all believed it? Y'all ain't get mad when you took Brooke Shields to Grammys. Nobody white said shit. And Brooke Shields is the whitest woman in America. That's Miss America every year. Brooke, fuck who you see with the crown. Brooke, you look up white woman in dictionary, be a picture of Brooke like this. She's white. And this nigga took her to Grammys, nobody said shit. If I took Brooke Shields to Grammys, y'all lose your mind. Cause y'all know Brooke would get fucked that night. Hello. So we'll be welcoming Dave Chappelle, one of this century's most prolific comedians. So my son, my youngest son, is 14 now. That's all what I was when I started. I'm 44 now, I look at him, and I think all the things that were going on around me at that time and what it was like starting, and now I can't imagine that that's what happened, but it felt very natural. And it felt very safe, even though it was not. Yeah, I mean, but I'm, I'm just grateful, man, like, to be able to do something like this for 30 years. Do something I, I gotta like be what? one of the luckiest people alive, man. Like, I don't know that I've ever really had any other job. Well, you're one of the greatest comedians to oh, ever walk the earth. your first TV so. 19. My mother and my grandmother were freaked out. You know, I was the first person in my family not to go to college, that had not been a slave, right? <laughs> so I was really breaking from tradition, and uh, it was like a graduation lunch we were having, and they had my dad come and talk to me, and my dad takes me outside, and he's like, listen, and this is some advice that applies to all of you acting students. He says, to be an actor is a lonely life. Everybody wants to make it, and you might not make it. And I said to my dad, well, well, that depends on what making it is, Dad. Smart, smart-ass kid. Depends on what making it is, Dad. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, you're a teacher. I loved it. He played a role in your life, I believe. How do you feel about him as a person, as an artist? Martin Lawrence is a guy that showed everybody you can make it from D.C. to Hollywood. And uh, I had a personal stake in his success. Every time he did something, it made me feel inspired really good. And he was always real nice to me. He'd sit there, what's going on with you, baby? What, what, talk about comedy, whatever. And, uh, you know, when we did Blue Streak, we were promoting nice to me. And, uh, you know, when we did Blue Streak, we were promoting it, and Martin had a stroke. He almost died. And then after that, I saw him, and I was like, oh, my God, Martin, are you okay? And he said, I got the best sleep I ever got in my life. It's how tough he is. Let me ask you this. What is happening in Hollywood 
that a guy that tough will be on the street waving a gun, screaming, they are trying to kill me. What's going on? Why is Dave Chappelle going to Africa? Why does Mariah Carey make a $100 million deal and take clothes off on TRL? A weak person cannot get to sit here and talk to you. Ain't no weak people talking to you. So what is happening in Hollywood? Nobody knows. The worst thing to call somebody is crazy, is dismissive. I don't understand this person, so they're crazy. That's bullshit. These people are not crazy. They're strong people. Maybe the environment is a little sick. So, instead of saying maybe, why don't you say the real shit, though? Don't be letting these motherfuckers Nick Cannon your ass. Talk. You know, in the past, I used to always tell a lot of jokes about white people. And I know there's a lot of white people here with us tonight. Good evening, whites. Everybody knows what it's like to be embarrassed or to be feel marginalized. The implication is authority. Nobody likes authority figures. When I say jokes about white people, don't think for a second that I'm talking about you. Don't forget I almost had $50 million once. When you make enough money in America, they'll pull back the curtain and introduce you to the real white people. You guys just think you're white. It's very intelligent. He's well raised. That goes without saying. A person who is well raised knows to to respect the elders. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with anything, even a little bit of what the elder says, but you respect the elder for surviving. It's so much bigger than money, though, Dave. It's so much bigger than money. Oh, no, what's bigger than money? But you know what it is. I, I watched one of these nature shows one time, and they were talking about how a bushman finds water when it's scarce. And they do what's called a salt trap. I, I, I didn't know this. Apparently, baboons love salt. Okay. So they put a lump of salt in a hole, and they wait for the baboon. The baboon comes, sticks his hand in the hole, grabs the salt. The salt makes his hand bigger, and he's trapped. He can't get his hand out. If he's smart, all he does is let go of the salt. Baboon doesn't want to let go of the salt. Then the bushman just comes, takes the baboon, throws him in the cage, and gives him all the salt he wants. And then the baboon gets thirsty. The bushman lets him out of the cage. The first place the baboon runs to is water. The bushman follows him, and they both drink to their fill. And in that analogy, I felt like the baboon. But I was smart enough to let go of the salt. Well, veteran of the comedy, people look to you to kind of clear the fog that we as Americans go through. Do you, I know you take that seriously, but is that a big burden on you, that people look to you for clarity, they look for you for truth? I think that it's a symptom of just how maybe bankrupt our society is right now, that, we, that we're looking to our entertainers for this type of guidance. But when things are obscure, artists do try to tell the truth. Sometimes it's not that like they're looking for the truth. Sometimes they just want to hear their truth come out of somebody else like why don't you know what i mean so 
Things that make you stay for real. That's what I think he's going to say. For all the things that I've done, I'm most renowned for what I didn't do. I've made decisions in my career that a lot of people have called insane. 2004, had a $50 million deal on the table. And in a crisis of conscience, flipped the table over and walked away. Went to South Africa. Everyone said I was running away from the money. That is not true. In fact, I still want that money. (laughs) The idea that I wanted to just share with you guys is the idea that sometimes you do what you think is best. Whether anybody understands it or not. I heard a story about my father when someone told me he used to do statistics for a company in D.C. The company he did statistics for started doing business with the South African government. So he quit his job. It's caused a lot of problems between his, him and his wife. It's hard for a man when he can't provide for his family the way he wants to. And he suffered through it. And a generation later, when I had my crisis of conscience, I was able to go to a free South Africa and get away from the heat. This idea that what you do in your lifetime informs the generations that comes after you is something I keep thinking about, something that is so much bigger than just ourselves. I just want, I just want, I just want you guys to remember, you know, that right now there's this thing where, where ethics aren't what they used to be. This idea that People are trying to replace the ideas of good and bad with better or worse. And that is incorrect. You gotta keep your ethics intact because uh, good and bad is a compass that helps you find a way. And a person that only does what's better or worse is the easiest type of person to control. They are a mouse and a maze that just finds the cheese. But the one knows about good and bad will realize that he's in a maze. This is my last question for you. You don't do many sit-down TV interviews. Why is that? Because because so much of an answer depends on how you feel any given day. But it lives forever. That your opinions about things can change. Your view of yourself can change. And yet this is on a permanent record. Like Donald Trump, he complains about it because someone can look at him and say, well, you said in 1984 that this, that, or the other, and, and that's the cross you have to bear when you engage the press. And more important than that, I talk for a living, so I don't want to blather about me blathering. You know what I mean? I just want to, I'd rather just do it. What if I told you that I run an online bridge business? And what if I told you that concept of a bridge is the best online business to start this year and for years to come? I bet you'd be skeptical. And I wouldn't believe you if you told me either. However, over the last few 
years, I've generated millions of dollars online using this bridge concept. And the best part about it is the inability for it to become saturated or competitive. Unlike MLMs, e-com, or affiliate marketing, this business is real and is something you can be proud of and feel good about. This is how it works. I act as a middleman between local businesses and their future customers. In the U.S. alone, 28 million businesses exist, but over the next five years, 80% will close. The number one reason is lack of capital, mainly caused by their inability to market and grab new customers. That's where I come in. The concept is so simple, a teenager can start this business. All I do is run tiny two-page sites on the same websites you visit every single day. What those tiny sites do is capture future customers' information so the business owner can contact them and offer them their services. Best part is, I get paid $750 to $5,000 per month every single month just to keep these tiny sites up and running for that one business. Business owners are happy to pay me because I'm making them money and in turn, I'm making a nice amount of monthly recurring income just leaving these sites up for them so they keep getting new customers. What's even better, you can duplicate it over and over for different business owners and stack your monthly income as slow or as fast as you want. The craziest part of all this, I started this with little to no money out of pocket. I had barely any technical skills, a full-time job, and a growing family. If you want to see exactly how I achieved all of this and how 2,800 other people with no prior experience are also running this business, I break it down for you in a free, no-cost training. Just find the button on the page and click it to watch all this in action. See, that's how the white people get you. They make you, they catch you not paying attention, then they slip a little ad in there. Next thing you know, you're running a commercial for a motherfucker like a slave, giving them some free shit. So that's just another example. On this interview, we'll listen to a white man talk about the truth and the true feelings of the 50s and 60s white people. This would probably be some of those feelings that led to... On this interview, we'll listen... I'm sorry, let me start again. Emmett Till was a young African-American that was murdered horribly horribly in a most shameful way back in the 60s and it is my observance that some of the ideas and thoughts that we are about to hear from um, an elderly white man about the way white people viewed racism and black people and the things they thought and said back back then. So, we're going to see if some of these feelings might be what actually led up to the murder and death of people like Emmett Till and George Floyd. 
I never liked the business, and that's when I started driving a cab. And I uh, used to do the things that most guys my age, like, say, 23, 24, and so forth, in that age bracket. We used to hang around what we called the hot, well, what was the hot shop in those days. That was the local hangout. And that was one of Marriott's first ventures into big business as such. And we had a certain hot shop uptown that we'd every night, just like clockwork, we'd go up there because we knew somebody would be there. If you've ever watched that show on television, uh, Happy Days, it's the same type of thing, you know, where the crowd assembled every night. And these were not teenagers now. These were young adults, I guess you would call them. And from there, everything emanated from there. I mean, we'd go out, get something to eat, go to a movie or go to a burlesque show or anything, you know, and we'd even wait till late at night, 2 o'clock in the morning, we'd take a trip over to Baltimore just to get a sandwich or something, you know, we were that type. And we used to do the same things. The kids in those days were a little different. I mean, we'd go out on Saturday night, we'd dress to the tees. I mean, we'd have, in those days, the big thing were the ducktail haircuts and the suede shoes and the one-button rolled jackets, double-breasted overcoats, and you always wore a hat because... If you didn't wear a hat, you, we, we were always told that we weren't completely dressed. So we wore a hat everywhere we went. We looked like uh, the junior mafia almost walking down the street. And uh, we did, generally we'd go to the beaches in the summer on the weekends. We'd go up to Atlantic City. We'd go to the local beaches down near Annapolis on a Sunday afternoon. Get dates just like anything else. And some of the guys were into gambling and they'd go have their card games. They'd go to the racetrack. Everybody had their own little thing that they used to like to do, you know. So we just had a general easy time of it. It was a good period of time for us. I mean, it wasn't, life wasn't too complicated. Okay, so. We didn't need brand new cars. My like bad. Apparently, he's not going to talk about the real feelings about white people. He's just talking about the shit they did on happy days. My bad. So, let's just say we're going to go into how some powerful... As we say, Karen's acts with black powerful people. And... I talk a lot about not hearing the booze. I don't give a f what you think, but it goes both ways. I also don't hear the accolades. If you actually pressure yourself. There is a huge fundraising deadline coming up for Senate Democrats, and they need your help right now if they're going to meet it. Every dollar you give. As a journalist who has worked with NBC, CBS, and ABC News, Katie Couric has had the opportunity to interview many powerful people, all the way from influential politicians to award-winning actors. Couric's advice for a good interview is pretty modest and simple. As she explained to Tony Masillis in a chat for YouTube Reporters Center, The more comfortable you make someone feel, the better interview you'll ultimately get. She also expressed the importance of being warm and welcoming when speaking with interview subjects. Unfortunately for the Virginia native, her advice didn't come in handy during a 2004 interview with actor Denzel Washington. Washington apparently wasn't happy with Couric's line of questioning, which resulted in her feeling shaken after the 
interview. As she recalled during an April 2020 appearance on the podcast Everything Iconic. For years now, there has been an ongoing debate about whether celebrity figures should share their opinions on politics. Katie Corey brought up this hot-button topic in 2004 when interviewing Denzel Washington for Dateline about a movie he was promoting at the time, The Manchurian Candidate. Considering the movie is a political thriller, it arguably makes sense why Corrick asked Washington whether he agrees with the idea that, quote, Hollywood folks should stick to acting. In response, Washington told Corrick, I don't know what Hollywood folks are, first of all. Hollywood is a town that has some stars on the sidewalk. I don't know anybody from there. Corrick pressed the issue, telling Washington, okay, all right, well, let me rephrase the question. Are you one of those people that, at this, Washington interrupted Corrick, saying, ah, there you go. Am I one of those people? Isn't that interesting? When the reporter tried to redirect once again by pointing out that Washington is an actor, the training day star shot back. No, I'm not that either. I'm a human being. My job is acting. Washington's response to Couric's line of questioning apparently left the interviewer shaken. On the Everything Iconic podcast, she went in depth about her feelings after the interview. I remember walking out and feeling really kind of shaken that he had kind of gone after me in a way that was completely, weirdly uncalled for. However, Couric also revealed that Washington made up for the incident in a meaningful way by writing a big check to the colon cancer organization that Couric was in charge of. The gesture was likely made even more meaningful considering that Couric's first husband, Jay Monahan, died of colon cancer in 1998. We can't say for certain why Katie Couric's interview with Denzel Washington went off the rails, although it might have had something to do with the actor's long dislike of Hollywood. Washington told The Guardian in 2013, even within the industry, I don't have any actor friends. My friends are old friends. One's an ex-music guy, the other's a restaurant owner, and the other's an ex-pro ball player. When pressed on the issue of avoiding the entertainment scene, Washington said, Maybe I'm not a butt kisser, maybe I'm not a schmoozer. I'm not about to go to a party to try and get a job. And then when you have children, the other friends become other parents. We coach baseball or basketball. My wife and I were raised right. I don't want movie star friends. So when Katie Corey brought up Hollywood folks in her interview with Washington, maybe he took offense because he thought she had lumped him into that category. About Five years after Katie Couric's awkward interview with Denzel Washington, she brought up another uncomfortable chat that went down between her and a mystery actor. During a 2009 talk with producer Tony Masillis, Couric said about the bad interview, I had an actor who I interviewed who shall remain nameless, who just didn't want to be bothered. It really annoyed me because I was giving him a lot of time on national television and he clearly didn't want to be there. We're not sure who Couric was referring to there, but it's possible that Denzel Washington is the culprit, as the journalist talked to him in 2004. Of course, it's impossible to say who Corrick was talking about unless she reveals the answer one day. Check out one of our newest videos right here, plus even more Nicky Swift videos about your favourite celebs are coming soon. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell so you don't miss a single one. When you make more, you make more gifts and wows. You make more statements, keepsakes and messes. The more you make, the more we can help. And now you can earn $5 in Michael's rewards when you spend $25 or more. Michael's, made by you.
spotlight, Denzel Washington is dedicated to his wife, Pauletta. Just like any couple, they've had their ups and downs, but have managed to make things work. Here are some things you might not know about their marriage. Denzel sat down with Oprah Winfrey and talked about the first day he met Pauletta. It was 1977, and Denzel was arriving at a hotel restaurant to work on the movie Wilma, while Pauletta was on her last day of filming. Denzel told Live with Kelly and Ryan, were at a party together. While there, Denzel casually talked about going to watch a play. Denzel went to see the play, and unbeknownst to him, Pauletta was there also. She arrived late and grabbed a seat. As the lights turned on during intermission, Denzel looked over and was surprised to see Pauletta sitting near him. It sounds like Miss Pauletta was doing some plotting, but can you really blame her? For their first date, Denzel told Jimmy Kimmel he wanted to splurge by taking Pauletta around town in a taxi. They went to dinner and he ended up spending all his money at the restaurant. When they left, they hailed a cab, but at that point, Denzel was out of cash. He watched as the meter increased more and more, and when their ride came to an end, Pauletta had no choice but to pay the fare. With the millions he's made since then, Pauletta probably isn't paying for any more dates. More importantly, their love has flourished and Denzel has publicly given his wife the respect and credit she deserves. People Magazine reported that while accepting his Lifetime Achievement Award, Denzel said, I would not be alive without Pauletta Washington. I wouldn't survive. He added that it was Pauletta who taught him about real and unwavering love, and they tied the knot on June 25, 1983. Typically, the proposal is one of a couple's most treasured memories. This isn't the case for the Washingtons, though. Denzel actually proposed to Pauletta three times, and for unknown reasons, she turned down his first two attempts. Due to the multiple rejections, Denzel's memory is a bit foggy about the whole situation. When Kelly Ripa asked him to describe how the last proposal happened, he scrunched up his face and said he couldn't even remember. For a man who makes his living memorizing whole scripts, it's pretty strange that he can't remember how he proposed to the love of his life. While on the TV Jake show, Denzel explained how he depended on his athletic ability while growing up. And according to Oprah Magazine, he got into a little trouble as a kid. Pauletta, on the other hand, was a whole different story. Denzel said, My wife's family had a great education. My wife was a child prodigy. I married up. Not only that, Denzel said Pauletta's family had a love and closeness he didn't get to experience during his childhood, especially since he grew up in what he described as a broken home. Seeing Pauletta with her family made him realize that he wanted to have that same kind of family bond one day. Denzel told People Magazine it's easy to keep his marriage afloat by stating, I do what I'm told, I keep my mouth shut. He has no problem allowing Pauletta to take control because she has made their house a home, all while raising and protecting their children. Denzel added, she sacrificed for them, she did the heavy lifting. His demanding career left him with no option but to have a hands-off approach to parenting. However, it worked for them because Pauletta's child-rearing skills have positively impacted their offspring. Their son, John David, played professional football with the St. Louis Rams and had a starring role in the HBO series Ballers. Their daughter, Katia, graduated from Yale and has worked as a production assistant on films such as Django Unchained, The Equalizer, 
and the birth of a nation. Their son Malcolm played basketball at the University of Pennsylvania and graduated with a degree in film studies. He now works as a producer. And their daughter Olivia is following in her dad's footsteps. The NYU graduate has snagged acting roles in The Butler and Empire. Just like any high-profile couple, the Washingtons have had their fair share of issues. Being a star and, and all of that, temptation's all around. It's all around, you know. And, and I haven't been perfect. I'll be quite candid about it. And what I, do you mean? Well, I just, you know, we've gone through ups and downs. While filming the 2003 film, Out of Time, rumors emerged he was having an affair with his co-star, Sanaa Lathan. Sanaa told Vibe magazine the rumor got started because the movie had a love scene between her and Denzel. She said people took that and translated it to real life. Things remained quiet for Denzel and Pauletta up until June 2013, when Vibe magazine revealed they spent their 30th anniversary apart. Weeks later, photos of Denzel allegedly kissing a blonde woman on the lips at a Malibu house party were being shot to several media outlets. The photos were never published, leading many to assume Denzel used his power, influence, and massive checkbook to keep them from seeing the light of day. An insider told Star Magazine the couple was spending time away from each other, and Pauletta had moved to New York to contemplate if she wanted to end her marriage. Through their rep, they eventually denied there was trouble in paradise and assured their fans that they weren't separating nor getting a divorce. Thankfully, they weathered that storm, but Pauletta seemed to hint at his infidelity in an interview with Ebony. She said Denzel knows that she provides him with the kind of stability he needs, and added, that's what gives him strength, regardless if he misuses it. I can't dwell on that. Denzel's schedule takes him away from home a lot. When their kids were still young, they decided it was best not to drag them around the world to accompany their dad on set. This meant Pauletta was pretty much on her own. Denzel told Oprah Magazine, Pauletta was the consistent one who made breakfast every day and took them to school. She taught them their prayers. According to Denzel, spending so much time apart didn't cause any issues. In fact, he believed it probably helped their relationship. Speaking to Oprah, Denzel admitted, instead of coming back from long breaks all lovey-dovey, he would come home and start some mess. Pauletta and the kids would have their own routines, and Denzel would pop in and aggressively point out what was being done wrong and how to do it the Denzel way. Once he noticed Pauletta was getting frustrated with him, he decided it was time to make some changes in his attitude. In 2016, rumors circulated that their marriage was ending. Why? Because according to Globe magazine, their whole relationship was about keeping up appearances. An insider said the marriage was on its last leg after Denzel had been caught stepping out several times. Well, of course those breakup rumors were false because the couple is still going strong. In Hollywood, where quickie relationships are the norm, Denzel and Pauletta have one of the longest running marriages. Pauletta told Extra that faith is the glue that keeps things intact. As for Denzel, he summed it up perfectly in a Reddit AMA by saying the key to a successful marriage is to never give up on each other. He added, it's a commitment. It's not all the honeymoon. It doesn't last forever, so you work at it. Let us know your thoughts on Denzel and Pauletta's marriage. And thanks for watching Real Reality Gossip.